Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about the 19th century Russian composer Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Before we get going, I have a few things to say. Firstly, content warnings. This episode will contain mentions of suicide, relationships between adults and adolescents, and period typical homophobia, both societal and like internalized homophobia from Pyotr himself. It also contains a cholera pandemic, death by cholera, and just general discussions of pandemic, which are currently a sensitive topic. So look after yourselves. This is part two of our Tchaikovsky two-parter. If you haven't heard part one, it was the previous episode. Go back and have a listen to that first. In December of 1876, Pyotr received several very well-paid commissions from a wealthy widow named Nadezhda von Meck. Not long into the new year, after he had fulfilled her requests, she wrote him a letter thanking him for how fast he had worked and adding that, with your music, my life is made easier and more pleasant. As soon as she received the works, Nadezhda became immediately fascinated with Pyotr. I at once wished to know what sort of man had created such a piece, she wrote to him. I began to seek out all opportunities to learn as much about you as possible, passing up no chance to hear something, listening to public opinion, individual judgments, to every remark. It's getting a little weird. Tchaikovsky writes back and is like, I'm very flattered. Thank you. Um, you know, <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, you can definitely imagine sitting down at your desk and like, how do I respond to this? Yeah. She, she keeps going. Like, she wrote to him that her ideal human was a musician, but his human qualities must be equal to his talent. I regard the musician human, this is hyphenated, <laughs> as the supreme creation of nature. <laughs> and she said that Tchaikovsky lived up to this idea. Okie dokie. He was like, this is weird. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm imagining like a modern equivalent of this where like Tchaikovsky's like a really great furry artist. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, I have commissioned your art and I'm obsessed with you and I've stalked you on Facebook now. Let's be friends. And he's like, thanks for your interest. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, commissions are open. <laughs> Early on, he is like somewhat uncomfortable with this and she like offers him unreasonably generous rates for commissions and things like that. And he Mm. kind of gently turns them down. But she assures him that she has no desire to meet him in person. She's like, that would be supremely awkward. Um, What a weird human being. (laughs) Let's just be friends over mail. And he's like, okay, we'll do that. (laughs) And bizarrely, they become quite close friends. So what's her deal? Is she just kind of like a little socially awkward or like not neurotypical or something, but like a nice person? Yeah, essentially. I was just worried she would start like increasingly crossing boundaries or something like that and like, I don't know, show up at his house and like kill his dog or something. No, she never never crosses any boundary. They agree very early on that they're not going to meet in person and like they run into each other once or twice very briefly and they're like, oh... Hi, and then they leave. <laughs> okay, so they just um, like navig- negotiated this kind of relationship yeah. where this is how it works. She's very, like, she's very kind of passionate about okay. her obsession with him, and she like financially supports him for a lot of his life. Oh. And they have this like ongoing, quite deep friendship through letters. It just starts in a really strange way. Okay, if you would like to have this sign up to our Patreon. <laughs> Sometimes when she's traveling in Europe, she'll organize to like have him in an apartment in like in the same town as her and be like, it's fine. I never want to meet you. But she says like she's very kind of enamored of the idea that he'll be close by. This is so intense. Tchaikovsky often felt that it was like a little too intense for him. Yeah. He like enjoyed her letters and like they were kind of on a level. They talk about like spirituality a lot and music a lot about a lot of things but the financial arrangements did make him kind of uncomfortable. Yeah Mm. like if someone wrote to me and was like I don't want to meet you but I'm just going to pay for you to be in an apartment in the city because I'll be there and I like Mm. to think of us being close to each other I'd be like no way. Yeah. Um, I think it's possibly not implausible to say that she might have been ace and had some like complicated feelings with about that which she could kind of resolve by having this intense but by distance relationship because she writes to him and says I'm very unsympathetic in my personal relations because I do not possess any femininity whatsoever second I do not know how to be tender 
And Poznanski also quoted her once saying that she stated at one point that she would have preferred humans to reproduce by mitosis like bacteria and thus avoid marriage altogether. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, that seems like yeah. a reasonable theory then. Like she definitely writes to him quite openly that she loves him and she's grateful for him in her life. And like, I don't think it's overreaching to suggest that she's sort of romantically interested in him, but they set this very clear barrier that they both seem perfectly happy with, that they're never going to meet in person. So mm-hmm. does he like come to genuinely love her too? Or is there always like a bit of a difference there? He does genuinely love her, like not romantically. Mm-hmm. As a friend, he's genuinely very fond of her. There is always a little bit of friction about how the money arrangement is because he comes to rely on her financial support, mm-hmm. but like he's never loved relying on other people for mm-hmm. financial support. Yeah. Like it's something that he's kind of written from that very first time when he went to Europe with his rich student and he writes back this letter to his sister that's like, look, it's very nice in Europe, but I can't help being kind of angry that the person I choose to spend my summer with is the one who's richest, not the one that I love most. Mm. Mm. But yeah, no, they do have a genuine friendship and except in the context of money, they seem like quite on a level. Um, That's good. And she sort of goes out of her way to, like, send him money when she thinks he needs it before he has to ask her to make Mm. it less awkward for him. Oh, yeah. That's good. That kind of thing. And that sounds like quite a cool relationship, actually. Yeah. Like, (laughs) not a... I'm glad that that is the situation. (laughs) It's very strange beginning to a relationship. And the fact that they live in the same city, like, walking distance from each other so often, and they're like, as much as possible, I wish never to meet you. It's not like a conventional relationship, but it sounds like they did, like, you know, negotiated out and yeah it worked yeah and so they become friends and have a correspondence for the next 13 years nice i guess it also was more normal then to just like have a wealthy patron who was just like Mm. yeah i'll just support you because i like your work Mm. in another strange letter-based situation (laughs) at some time in the first half of 1878 so the same year that that Nadezhda wrote to him, Pyotr received a love letter from one of his old students, a woman named Antonina Milyakova. She was in her late 20s, and prior to joining his class at the conservatory, she had worked professionally as a seamstress. How old is Pyotr now? He's 38. This wasn't the first time he'd received a love letter from one of his students, or something like (laughs) this had happened. As we established early in the piece, he was quite good looking. Oh yeah, yeah, from that one guy's (laughs) memoir who hates him. (laughs) And he's also very stylish now, because he's been to Paris. This is true. And he's also like moderately famous. Yeah. And he's yeah, also okay. like a nice guy. He's very I've kind. Been, I <laughs> have been focusing too much on how he's like somewhat awkward soft boy and not thought about how he's like a fantastic catch. Yeah. <laughs> Usually he courteously ignored these letters, which seems like a normal that response. Seems, yeah. Um, but good. on this occasion, he wrote to Nadezhda that the letter had been so warm and so genuine that he decided to write a reply. The reply itself is lost, but from the contents of Antonina's next letter, we can kind of establish that he very kindly said to her, look, I'm very flattered and grateful for your love, but I don't reciprocate it. Thank you for writing. The correct way to reply. Shortly afterwards, another letter follows in which Antonina begs him to meet with her, saying, I'm dying with longing and burning with a desire to see you. There is no shortcoming that would make me stop loving you. Goodbye, my dear. I cannot live without you. And that's why soon, perhaps, I shall kill myself. Let me look at you and kiss you so that I can remember this kiss in the next world. Oh, dear. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know what you should do about that, frankly. Nor did he, so he agreed to meet with her. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, he wrote a letter to his former lover, who you might remember, Ivan Klimenko. They oh, were, yeah. remained friends for most of their lives. The although, Divan guy. Yeah, the Divan guy. <laughs> although Ivan did marry a woman and have children. Poznansky was very confused about this. He was like, <laughs> clearly they were lovers, but Ivan was heterosexual. Oh, honey. It makes me just so tired when I read that. Like, you still read it, and like you said, it's mm. written in the 90s, but I've read that in articles that are written like, now they're mm. like i just don't understand it's just google it um, <laughs> anyway <laughs> in his in his letter to ivan Klemenko, he wrote that he had changed a great deal morally and that he was seriously considering marriage and then he met with antonina he again explained to her gently that she seemed like a nice person and he'd enjoyed having her in his class but he didn't reciprocate her feelings. The way that 
Antonina describes this meeting. She says, the following day, he said, I've thought everything through. Here is what I have to say. Never in my life have I loved a single woman, and I feel I am already too old for an ardent love. I shall never feel it for anyone. But you are the first woman who I like very much. If you will be satisfied with a quiet, calm love, rather like the love of a brother, then I make you my proposal. In the version of these events that Pyotr wrote to Nadezhda, he says that he listed his shortcomings to her, including his unsociability, as he put it, he was quite introverted, his lack of financial management skills, as well as the fact that he did not love her. And then he asked her if she still wanted to marry him. Okay. She said yes, she still wanted to marry him. I really hope he's like, oh, well, like, tough, you can't. That is not what happened. Uh... To Nadezhda, he wrote, I came to the conclusion that if, having gone thus far, I was suddenly to turn away from this girl, I should make her life truly miserable and lead her to a tragic end. Thus, I was faced with a difficult alternative, either preserve my own freedom at the cost of this girl's ruin or marry I could but choose the latter. Oh, this is terrible. This is very terrible. So he's really just doing it because he doesn't really see another way to help her. He kind of equal parts like he'd written earlier, as we saw, about how he wanted to marry. And Mm. to some extent, and I think he's trying to like like put a good spin on this situation, he's like, this could turn out quite well. What a coincidence that just when I was thinking of marrying, this situation arose. As we said, he's faced with a difficult situation and this is the choice that he makes. Does this girl have like a family? She has a family, but they're not a particularly stable or loving Mm. family. Her parents never got on well. I think her father is dead now. Her brother is estranged from her mother. Tchaikovsky mm. does meet her family at one point, and he says it's like it's tense and horrible. Oh, okay. mm. So um, no support for Antonina. Yeah. Yeah, she just, like, psychologically and, like, life-wise seems to be in a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, so he agrees to marry her. And he finishes his letter to Nadezhda about it, saying kind of desperately. I know from experience that in life very often that which frightens and terrifies sometimes turns out to be beneficial. What will be will be. It's not really how you want to announce your engagement. No. This is a mistake, Piotr. Yeah. And I do want to be very clear to our listeners that if someone says they will kill themselves if you don't marry them, you are not obligated to marry them. No. And you don't need to do that. And if they do, that's not your fault at all. Yeah. So in June, he wrote to his father asking for his blessings on the wedding. His father, knowing little about the situation, said he was very happy to hear that Piotr was getting married and he would, of course, bless the wedding. Oh, dear. And he addressed Antonina in the letter saying, was, could he refer to her as his daughter now? Oh, he remains a nice man. He's a very <laughs> nice man. I for his whole you. life, he's a good man. When does he get a third wife? He is married again by this time. Okay. He doesn't have any further children. His current children seem to be fond of their stepmother. Okay. It seems like a happy marriage. I'm just invested in this guy's, like, personal well-being. Yeah, no, he has a a new wife. Her name is Elisabetta. He loves her. Hmm. Now that we've heard more about him, that statement from the biographer that his dad was, like, a philanderer and that's why (laughs) Tchaikovsky was gay is even more nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, he just seems to be, like, a nice man. Yeah. Anyway. So, Pyotr did not want any family at the ceremony. He invited Anatoly as a witness and informed his siblings of the wedding by letter the night before, so they would not have time to come. They were married on July 6th in a ceremony followed by a banquet that Antonina's cousin described as just like a funeral banquet. So cheerless was it. Was she happy at least? She seems to be like... Very in love with him, but I think everyone else around is clear that this is a nonsense idea. Yeah. Mm. And, like, it's clear from the whole situation that she's not so much in love with him as she is in love with the idea of being in love with him. Yeah, like, she obviously has, like, some other psychological issues or she's in... She's not in a good place in her life. She's in a real bad place in her life. Marrying Tchaikovsky isn't going to fix it for her. Yeah, but I think she kind of hopes that it will. Yeah, I mean, I want to really realistically how much she expected this to work. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. To your, like, like, previous hot lecturer being like, ah, marry me. And he was like, all right. And she's like, (laughs) okay, I guess we're doing this. It's very hard to tell what's going through her mind at this time. She doesn't 
write anything about it until much later and much later she's been in like an institution for mental illness Mm. and has been through further bad times and kind of expresses this idea that she was in love with him and he was in love with her and his family like whispered poison to him until Mm, which is obviously not which is obviously not the case and i'm sure she was aware of that at the time what does uh his eccentric pen pal think about this she like very politely at the time is like i'm sure that this can work out i'm sure you'll be happy and then as soon as the marriage falls apart which it does she writes and says i didn't want to be too direct we'd only just met but that was a terrible idea (laughs) (laughs) essentially in a letter to anatoly on the 8th of july He describes the day of his wedding as a terrible day. Piotr seems to have imagined that because Antonina was of like lower social class than him, he might be able to kind of control her and thus just be able to go about his normal life while having a wife. Mm. Well, that's not how the world is. That is not how the world is. She is Um, a person. (laughs) He wrote this letter, which reads... I must not deceive myself. She is very limited, but that is even good. I should be afraid of an intelligent woman, but I stand so far above this one that at least I don't have to fear her. Um, In any case, they never really even had an opportunity to see whether the marriage would work out. He was plunged immediately into a personal crisis about his decision-making, and he grew quickly resentful of her, writing to Nadezhda, that Antonina was, he said, hateful to me in the fullest sense of the word. He acknowledged that this was not at all her fault. Mm -hmm. But he confessed a fear that the only good part of myself, that is my musical talent, has perished irretrievably in this marriage. He briefly considered suicide, torn between his desire to escape the situation and his love for his family and his work, neither of which he wanted to leave behind. As far as we know, Antonina was apparently unaware that there was a problem. Or so she said years later. Mm. I don't super trust her on that. I feel like she may well have like modified her version of events after the fact. Mm-hmm. But in her memoir years later, she wrote that he was kind and handsome and she had counted herself lucky to be married to him. He ultimately suffered a complete emotional collapse according to his doctors, and was advised to go abroad to convalesce. It's possible that the emotional collapse was somewhat exaggerated in order to allow him to part from the wedding without scandal, because Modeste's account of it includes him falling into unconsciousness for two weeks, which obviously did not happen, (laughs) because he's still alive. Yeah. I mean, like... As well as him being in a marriage that he, like, you know, went into very rashly because he didn't know how to deal with the situation with Antonina. I feel like this is probably also, like, tied up with his own thing where he kind of wanted to, like, stop being attracted to men and marry a woman. And then, like, he's tried marrying a woman and it's not working out. So, it would also be tied up with, like, his own. He yeah. doesn't have that in his back pocket as this thing he can just, like, do one day now. And yeah. And kind of fix things. Yeah. Like, yeah. did it and it didn't work. That's bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he very much in his sort of like letters to his siblings and things, they've written to him and said, you know, you barely know her. Do you love her? And he sort of says, no, but I think I could learn to. Mm. Um, And then immediately after the marriage, he kind of becomes aware that he's deceived himself on this point. And you can't just force yourself into Mm. heteronormativity, I guess. Mm. Yeah, it is very sad that he did this to avoid hurting her and obviously is just going to like hurt her in a protracted way yeah now instead yeah so he fled the marriage to switzerland where in october so a few months after the wedding he wrote to modeste saying whatever may happen i shall never agree to spend even a single day with antonina i wish her every happiness which does not prevent me from hating her deeply Mm. Mm. so he never returned to the marriage but the spectre of it never fully left him alone. At various times, he requested a divorce, which she refused quite reasonably, because as long as they remained married, he sent her a monthly pension. Oh, yeah. And sometimes she requested a divorce, which he would refuse, because he was afraid that if the divorce went through court, it would bring up his homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't no-fault divorce in Russia at this time. They had to, like, prove that either... One of them was impotent or adultery had occurred or there were a few Mm -hmm. other situations. The generally done thing if you wanted to divorce was to, like, pay a few fake witnesses for adultery. 
So he was always very concerned that the easiest thing to do would be for her to take it to the courts and say, well, he's a homosexual, mm-hmm. which would be difficult to disprove because he had sex with men all the time. <laughs> and she was aware of this. Was he still having sex with men? I think like general public opinion was aware of this. It's not clear, but he may have told her when he gave her that full list mm-hmm. of his shortcomings. Mm-hmm. And he was like, are you sure you really want to marry me? He was definitely very clear that he could not love her mm-hmm. in the way that she wanted. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, this is a very serious and bad situation, but I just love him showing up to a cafe and being like, I am gay and bad at money. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. But I think possibly between, even if he didn't say, between the fact that there were rumors about it. And that he had told her he couldn't possibly love her romantically. It wouldn't have been hard for her to, Mm. you know, trust the rumors. He spent some time avoiding Moscow and St. Petersburg because all of his sort of circle and all of her circle were there. She was there. He traveled with Anatoly and then he stayed for a while with Modest and Kolya. His old friend, Alexei Apukhtin, wrote to him reassuringly saying that his true friends do not care what sauce you prefer on your asparagus, sour, (laughs) sweet or salty. possible euphemism for I know you're gay and it's fine. I like it. It provides a third option. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. All that we went with asparagus. Like, I don't know. To me, asparagus is just like, it's not a food that I eat very often. It's not like a go-to, like, I'll use this food in my metaphor. So what would you have said, Alice? Please tell us your 21st century Australian version of this. I mean, I feel like the big sauce debate is tomato or barbecue, but like- Or mustard, if you want three options. I hate mustard. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about the squirty ones in a bottle so that you put on your yeah. sausage and bunnings. So, yeah, yeah. So it's, I don't care what <laughs> sauce you put on your bunning sausage, tomato, barbecue, or mustard. <laughs> yeah, All right, cool. Thanks. Good, good work, everyone. Good work. Um, so towards the end of the year- Piotr wrote, only now, especially after the incident of my marriage, have I finally begun to understand that there is nothing more fruitless than wanting to be other than what I am by nature. I feel like you've realized this before. (laughs) He has. Yeah. He goes through it occasionally. Mm. Sometime during his flight, he and his servant Alyosha, who was now 18 or 19, appear to have become lovers. So is this the one that was 12? Yeah. Ah! He is now an adult, barely. Well... But no, no. If someone has lived in your house since Mm. they were 12, since you were an adult adult to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they apparently became lovers. This seems to have happened like sometime in 1877 because his letters to Alyosha change their sign offs from being like, give your brother a kiss and say hello to your mom to me, big hug, to being like, goodbye, my darling, I send you a thousand kisses. Well, this is terrible. In September of 1978, he read a very negative newspaper article about the Moscow Conservatory where he worked. After mentioning a number of like scandalous relationships between professors and female students, it added, there are at the conservatory also amours of a different kind, but about them, for obvious reasons, I shall not speak. <laughs> wow, so trashy. <laughs> yeah, it was some like real trashy tabloid. like take five or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The article, in as far as it mentioned him by name, said that Tchaikovsky was one of the few decent men at the conservatory, but he still presumed that this was a personal attack on him and his Mm. sexual proclivities. He was not the only, like, man at the conservatory who liked to have sex with men. Um, I didn't assume he was. He was absolutely not, but I think in the sort of state of mind he was in, he assumed that this was his fault. He wrote to Modeste, My reputation falls on the whole conservatory, and for this I feel ashamed and wretched. Mm. He had already been thinking of leaving his teaching job, as I mentioned earlier, a while back when Nikolai Rubinstein shredded his concerto for apparently no good reason and he was mad about it. He had also, yeah, generally sort of grown bored of the work. So he wrote to Nadezhda von Meck describing his situation and she wrote back and said, oh, well, that's fine. I'll provide you with a pension of a thousand rubles per month. Maybe I'll write to Nadezhda von Meck. Yeah, we should all write to <laughs> Nadezhda von Meck. Um, and so he lets Nikolai Rubinstein know that he is leaving the conservatory. They part on relatively good terms. They remain friends. That's he good. seems to have forgiven him for the concerto <laughs> situation. So he returns to Moscow and now, with Nadezhda's support behind him, is ready to devote all his time to composing or long walks or playing cards. <laughs> on his way back, 
I just wish to share this very funny little anecdote that I found. He went to see a play and he wrote this letter to Modest with regard to an actor in the play who had had to slap someone in the face and like the cause of the plot. He wrote this letter to Modest, which said, what I wouldn't give to have that same hand give me a hundred slaps in the face. This hand belongs to a divine creature whom you and I both admired in that memorable production in 1876. <laughs> which was just the best thing. That's wow. very much just like the 1800s equivalent of like somebody. Step on me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is fairly typical of his letters to Modeste. He's writing all the time about, like, towns he's going through, saying the men and especially the boys here are very beautiful. Oh, He is quite, like, to be clear, he never has any, like, sexual relationships with a child, as far yeah, as we can tell. But, but he is quite weird about it. I feel like once you're this age, an 18, 19-year-old yeah, that's is functionally fair. a child. That is yeah. fair to say. Especially one you um, have known since they're a child. Especially one you have another power dynamic yeah. over of being like their, you know, employer. And like you mentioned earlier that his circle would often have relationships with men who are like lower class than them. Yeah, that's true. Um which also, like, I don't know if that's continuing, mm -mm. but if it is, introduces another power dynamic. We're like, how old is he now? He's like late thirties. Yeah, like yeah. when you're, you know, like a, Twice around is... forty, mm. and you're getting into relationships with like nineteen-year-old lower-class men. Like, yeah, that's quite. There's no spinning that as they're an adult, though. Really, in my yeah. Opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I don't sort of mean to defend him saying this yeah, is ethical, I but I do think there's a distinction to be made sure, between yes. this is a beautiful 19 year old and this is a yeah. beautiful 12 year old. Yeah, no, there is. But also heck and yikes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like the beginning of his relationship with Alexei is quite yikes. Mm. The beginning? Yeah, they remain together. Forever? Alexei Forever. does get married and the wife moves into the house with them. And what? that's just the situation. <laughs> and oh. she's still with Tchaikovsky? It's, it's, not, it's not super clear. Okay. Um, like, I never saw sort of explicit quotes from one to the other because most of the time they live together. Yeah, that is mm. unfortunately difficult. And so most of our information comes from letters and he never writes in his diary like i had sex with alyosha today his wife was napping elsewhere yeah <laughs> no she she absolutely knew about the situation whatever it was by that point because when alexei writes to tchaikovsky saying tchaikovsky was away at the time saying i've decided to get married um tchaikovsky writes back and says oh i'm very happy for you i hope that she's more sympathetic to me than the previous woman that you were dating was. Okay. So there's clearly there was a previous woman who was like, this is a weird and uncomfortable situation. <laughs> but I don't know what the situation was by that point. But like, okay. they may not have known. Like, if Tchaikovsky's just like, you know, a man who is rumored to be gay and, you know, like, he has a reputation. Yeah, he so very much does. Somebody being unsympathetic to him may not mean that Alexei sat down and was like, now look, me and Piotr are in a relationship and we are going to have to, like, you know, that's a part of this. Yeah. It could just mean that they were like, I don't like Tchaikovsky because, like, he has a reputation and yeah. I don't want to be in that household. That is possible. So, yeah, no, I do want to be clear that. He was quite weird about youth in men. Mm. Um, well, this is such a weird situation where, like, Alexei's age wife would be like, this is my husband, and his 40-year-old boyfriend, and his 40-year-old boyfriend's sort of platonic life partner who he only corresponds with by <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's such a What are you not understanding? <laughs> yeah, you are correct. So in late 1880, Alexei turned 21 and became eligible for the draft into the army. Ah. Oh. This is a thing which essentially only applies to, like, the working class. Like, if you're educated in a profession, like, you can not go. If you're, like, socially elite, you're not in the drawer in the first place. Wow. The Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> basically. God, imagine if we did that, like, now. I mean, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure, obviously, the rich can get out of anything. Yeah. Drafts where they exist easier. Than yeah. People. Yeah. So Tchaikovsky had been trying to avoid this for some time by encouraging Alexei to sit like a school leaving exam. Because mm -hmm. if he had that qualification, then his term in the army would be shortened. But he'd only just taken the exam when he got called up. So do they know when they're going to get called up? Is it some working class people get called up or is it like everyone? What's going on? It's a lottery. 
It's okay. a lottery yeah. that happens in Moscow. Every 21-year-old man who's eligible turns up and, like, stands there while they draw out names. That's yeah. a nightmare. That is a nightmare. I mean, that's what they did here for Vietnam. Yeah, true. Yeah, no, they did it was, my birthdays, yeah. but, like, that's probably and how that's they did it. And that's a nightmare. Oh, yeah, like, it's, it's a nightmare. nightmare. Yeah. 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 We famously were like, nah. Yeah, that's true. How about no? Yeah. So, Alexei had to travel to Moscow in order to be at the lottery. Tchaikovsky was very stressed and he buried himself in his work to distract him. He was writing an overture commissioned for the consecration of a cathedral in Moscow, which had been built to thank God for helping them defeat Napoleon. Is this the 1812 overture? It is. He did not like it very much. Oh, no. He says it was loud and noisy, which frankly I think is his own fault for, like, writing cannons into it. When you use cannons as percussion, (laughs) (laughs) it's going to be loud and noisy. I love it so much that they just, like, have to wheel cannons on stage and just fire cannons. It's so good. I would like to get shot out of a cannon in my life. (laughs) You're small. You could be like a circus flyer. Uh, yeah. They still do that. Is that like a thing that you can do to a person? I don't know. I think so. Anyway. So he wrote to Alexei, who was in Moscow waiting for the lottery, know that whatever happens, whether you go into the army or not, I will never forget you for a moment. If indeed you are fated to go into the army, I shall count the days impatiently waiting for you to return. I kiss you warmly and embrace you tenderly. So Alexei had been drafted. The news came in mid-November. Tchaikovsky visited him once at the barracks and found that it was very dark and dreary and he was very concerned. He spent a lot of time trying to, like, get in with Alexei's superiors to, like, give him a good posting somewhere. And he wrote to him, I dream that when you finish your time in the army, if I am still alive, I shall cease living in other people's homes and shall settle down in some nice little place forever. We shall find a nice, comfortable little apartment and live gloriously. So how old is Piotr and how long is Alexei going to be in the army? Like, he's saying if I'm still alive. He's only in his 40s. Okay. He's just being really dramatic. <laughs> okay. Like, I think it's 1880 this year, and he's 40. And he's just being very dramatic. Alexei is going to be there. It was originally going to be four years, I think, but then the Tsar was assassinated and the new Tsar came and was like, I think the, the term is too short. I don't um. like how everyone is thinking about revolution. Let's send them all to the army. And so he made it six years. Wow. Um, and then that fixed that problem. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. No yes. problem. Ever again. Um, so in 1883, Tchaikovsky received some terrible news from his brother Anatoly, who had heard that Alexei had pneumonia and was dangerously ill. He recovered, but this gave Tchaikovsky the opportunity to write to his superiors saying he needs a year of medical leave. His doctors say he's prone to consumption and he must come home or he will get consumption. It works. They granted him a year of medical leave. Nice. Does that, like, count as part of the... It seems to have. Nice. <laughs> um, around the same time, his exam results that he took finally came through, and they were like, okay, you only have to be in there for three years now. One Fine. of those years has passed, and the other one you're about to spend on a year of medical leave. Good. How long does it take to mark an exam? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why this part took so long, because he definitely sat the exam before the draft came up and then didn't hear anything about this for like a year afterwards. <laughs> I don't know whether his results just like got lost in paperwork somewhere for a while and then someone they- found it in a drawer and was like, oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. go get this kid out of the army. In May of eighteen eighty three, Tchaikovsky was reunited with Alexei at his brother Anatoly's house where Anatoly's wife had just given birth and so they were around to like give support. I found Alyosha completely healthy, he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> To stay with him will be a delight beyond words. So that paid off, I guess. (laughs) Just imagine showing up and Alex is like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) So early in the next year, he wrote to Nadezhda saying, I've begun to dream of settling down in some stable and permanent home of my own. So for most of his life, he'd like traveled, he'd stayed with family who he had a lot of or stayed in like temporary apartments and things like that. But Nadezhda put him in in Florence. He had just turned 44 and in his journal, he wrote, it's time to be living in my own place and my own way. So once Alexei was discharged from the army for good, they rented a house in the countryside, just a little way out of Moscow. 
And this is where, for the sake of comparison, I'm going to tell you what Tchaikovsky's new daily routine looks like. <laughs> Good. He gets up between seven and eight. Oh. After morning tea, he reads or he studies English, and then he goes for a walk of 45-ish minutes. From 9.30 until 1, he works on composition. Then he has lunch, after which he goes for a two-hour walk. People in, like, the 1800s just walked, like, I mean, I guess the upper classes, which is often what you read about, they just walked so much. He'd read somewhere that going for at least two hours of walk every day it was, like, good for your health, and so he did that religiously, apparently. I mean, like, that's not going to be bad for you. Yeah. Because they don't have the internet. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they cannot scroll, so um, they must make the world scroll past them. Yeah, exactly. Very no. silly. Remember Anne Lister? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The walks that woman went. That's true. My God. I mean, I guess when they put us in lockdown, we did just do this too. Yeah. I went for so many walks. It's true. <laughs> yes. I walked all the time. You walked one hour a day, the legal amount, and that was all. <laughs> Sometimes it was legal to walk for more. <laughs> I just didn't want you to be admitting to crimes on air. Anyway, he would return home from his two-hour walk by four. He would have dinner, after which he would read the paper or have guests over. After that, until seven, he would work. That doesn't seem like a big space of work if he had guests over at four. Yeah, so you got um, home at four and then you had dinner. And after that, if the weather was good, he might go for a walk with his guests. <laughs> or play the piano. And then he would have supper. And then he would have a game of cards, and then he would read in bed and go to bed at 11. So his routine hasn't actually changed much, except no. that he's, like, shifted it two hours earlier. Yeah. Which is yeah. the thing that seems to happen to people as they get older. On April 25th of 1890, Tchaikovsky turned 50. He celebrated this with his brother Modest and two friends. A few months later, Nadezhda sent him a short letter along with 600 rubles, which was half a year of his allowance. This she followed with a letter saying that she was now bankrupt and could not continue to patronize him. Oh, I returned those rubles. (laughs) He naturally wrote back saying that the friendship was more important to him than the money and she should, of course, continue to write to him. But he never heard from her again. Oh, that's very sad. In a letter in October 1890, so later on in the same year, Alexei suggested to Tchaikovsky that Nadezhda could not be as bankrupt as she had said she was, since shares of the railroad which she owned are much higher than they were last year. So he attempted to contact her several times and was always told by members of her household that she was too ill to reply and that she sent her regards. This had often happened in the past. She had some kind of chronic pain condition, which stopped her writing letters sometimes. But she'd always been able to, like, dictate news or send news through one of her children or a member of her household. Her Um, children? She had, like, 11 of them. She was a widow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. They were adult children by the time Mm -hmm. that they met each other, I think. So... In the following years, it became apparent that the Von Meck family was not in financial ruin at all. Tchaikovsky was very betrayed and confused about this. In the absence of any other explanation, he put down her abandonment to female inconstancy. <laughs> which was... Okie doke. You know, a 19th century moment for you there. Okay, yeah. Pete. I don't know that we could really call it that when she's been, like, a good friend to you for 13 years and then something yeah. happens and she stops. Like, it's not inconstancy. No. Yeah. It's not, like, fickleness, you know. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he had no idea what had happened. Um, yeah. Like, obviously, you know, it, it's bad that she just kind of cut off communication with mm-hmm. him, but I don't think that the sexist interpretation was useful in any way. No, not at all. Many years later, Anna von Meck, who was one of Tchaikovsky's nieces by his sister Sasha and had married into the von Meck family, Okay. Recalled Nadezhda telling her that after she had stopped sending money to Tchaikovsky, she had never heard from him again, and she had been hurt and confused when he'd cut off their friendship. Ah. So our best guess is that somebody in Nadezhda's household wanted this relationship to end for some reason, and so started lying that they were passing on letters that they were not passing on. Ah. But wait, where does the whole money thing... Like, do we think that the letter where she was like, here's 600 rubles, I'm not sending you money anymore, was real? So the theory that I read about this, which came from Poznansky, was that... One of her children, who co-managed her estate with her, thought that she was wasting money on Tchaikovsky and was trying to, like, wrest financial control from her. And so she sent him a lump sum, being like, I'm not sure when I'll be able to send money again. Oh, yeah. And then everything that followed from there was fabricated, basically. No, um, no don't do that. That's she very sad. Her money how she likes on yeah. this <laughs> yeah. old composer. She's an old lady. She can do what she wants. Yeah. We've really come around on this situation, clearly. 
If that's what happened, that's so terrible as well because he said, like, okay, like, don't send me money, let's just be friends. Yeah. Yeah. So they could have just written letters to each other and not had money be a part of it. And I don't yeah. really see what business that is of anyone. Of anyone's <laughs> no. children, yeah. Like, maybe they were like, nah, she'll just send money again. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Or maybe they were like, if she writes to him, she'll tell him what's going on. And she had, like, had money troubles occasionally before, which she'd mentioned to him. And he'd always immediately written and been like, oh, well, don't be stupid. Please stop sending me my allowance. And she would be like, no way. Hmm. No way, I will not take the money. And... So he was very stunned when money stopped coming because this had like in sort of smaller ways happened before and he'd always been like, it's fine, don't send money. And she'd always just be consistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like there'd been times when they'd written less often to each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But yeah, this was different. And it was very sad because they never had any chance to reconnect. Yeah, I mean, I guess Mm. when your only contact is letters, it actually is very easy Mm. for someone to interfere with that. Yeah. Yeah. In 1891, he and Alexei and Alexei's new wife, Katya, moved to their final home in a town called Klin, just a little way out of Moscow. Here, Katya had two children, the oldest one they appointed Tchaikovsky as the godfather of. That's good. He seems to have been happy in this household. I guess he's kind of managed to have kids I guess so yeah yeah and I guess he is in a household with children and he is a parental figure yeah Yeah. he was also often like quite closely associated with his nephews and nieces Mm -hmm. that's good Um, which was nice in February of 1893 he began to work on a sixth symphony he kept the program of the sixth symphony so like what it was about secret from everybody. All he would reveal to anyone was that it had great emotional significance to him and that in composing it, he wept terribly. The only things we know about it are on the boat back from the US, where he went in his old age, as I mentioned earlier. He planned like some very short sketches for a symphony, which he called Life, whose movements were based on themes like youth and love and death. So is this the same sixth symphony? We can only assume so. Okay. So it's like an autobiographical symphony. Yeah, kind of. Okay. He dedicated the symphony to his nephew, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) The story behind this is that his nephew was called Vladimir, but he was the youngest child for a long time, and they nicknamed him Baby, as in the English word, because they thought that was cute. And he couldn't say it. (laughs) Oh, He was trying to be like, I'm Baby, and he was like, I'm Bob. (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, so, okay, Bob. That's why he was called Bob forever. <laughs> At least Bob is a name. I mean, it's not a Russian name. It's not a name, name in Russia, Did they though, know it was a name? I don't know. That's true. They may not have known I don't Bob. I <laughs> But yeah, Bob was his favourite nephew. Bob is my favourite nephew, too. <laughs> and in May, he travelled to England to receive an honorary doctorate. For music oh. from Cambridge University. Like, I definitely know, obviously, that Tchaikovsky is a very famous musician, but because we've talked about his personal life mostly, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, he is doing that. That's kind of how it came out, because in my original script, I, like, noted every time he wrote a significant work, but he just oh, yeah. writes constantly. Mm. Yeah. And every time I'd be like, well, this doesn't really connect yeah, to his life or anything. He was that. just commissioned to write some dances, and they got very popular. <laughs> yeah, if someone's not creating art that really connects to their own personal experiences at that moment. It's kind of like, well, how do we fit that in? Mm. Early on Monday, October the 26th of 1893, Tchaikovsky's death of cholera was announced. I'm about to give you like a huge amount of detail about the preceding days, but I just thought I'd let you know what we were leading up to so you weren't like confused about what occurred. Are we getting the red string out? Maybe. Okay, I'll pay attention. So the details of this account mostly come from Modeste, who wrote like a detailed eyewitness account. He was present the whole time after the fact in order to dispel rumors about what had gone on. So we shouldn't Um, need red string if we trust Modeste. If you trust Modeste, you shouldn't need red string. But <laughs> such a wild sentence. It sounds um, like a code sentence. Yeah, yeah. But there are like potential reasons we're going to bring up later that people don't trust Modest, basically. Okay. Okay. So on Wednesday, October twentieth, he met with various friends who largely recall him seeming positive and in good health. He had macaroni for supper with Modest, <laughs> and after they ate. The two returned home. Modeste said he seemed quite healthy and calm at this time and that they went to bed around 2am. Sounds like a nice evening. Yeah, he had macaroni. That sounds good. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically all I'm thinking about. (laughs) The next morning, Modeste found him still in bed. 
complaining of an upset stomach. Modest suggested they send for a doctor, but Tchaikovsky said that no, he was fine. He had things on today and he often suffered from stomach upsets when he was like anxious or stressed or things like that. And he wasn't Mm -hmm. particularly concerned. Around 11 in the morning, he headed out on a visit to a friend, but found when he got up that he felt much worse upon leaving the house and he went back home. He took castor oil, which he often did to help his stomach. I have no idea whether that's a thing. It's a thing people do. I don't know if it's a thing that works. Yeah, but it's not like, you know, taking mercury or something like that. (laughs) He wrote an apology to his friend for missing their arranged hangout. And wrote a few other letters, including one to the impresario of the Odessa Theatre, planning a performance later in the year. Around lunchtime, Modeste came home and ate lunch in Tchaikovsky's company. Tchaikovsky didn't eat anything, he just sipped on mineral water, he wasn't feeling well. After this, he went to bed to have a nap. By the evening, he was feeling much worse, and Modeste insisted on sending for a doctor. When the doctor arrived, the doctor confirmed that this looked like cholera. So what, like, is cholera? Okay. I learned a lot about cholera. I was like, well, this is a novel pandemic to Google. This makes a change. <laughs> Don't a novel pandemic. Oh. Or some kind of novel virus. <laughs> anyway. Basically, it's a bacteria that can spread essentially in contaminated water from people's feces. It causes like severe diarrhea and muscle spasms and it will eventually lead to dehydration. Is that how people die from it? Sometimes people die from dehydration. Sometimes they die. I don't know all the medical details of this. is bad now. Today, like in the modern world, it has a relatively good survival rate when treated, but the most effective thing to do is not get it in the first place. Mm. And so was there like a cholera pandemic at this there time? There was a cholera pandemic at the time. So between 1892 and 1894, there was a cholera pandemic in Russia. In the summer of 1892, that was the worst year for the pandemic. I think 200,000 people in Russia died. 1893 was apparently a less bad year, although another 200,000 people did die in the, like, 1893-1894 span. Okay. Um, I couldn't find statistics that broke it down more specifically than, like, 200,000 in the first year, 200,000 in the second two. So it hasn't gone away, but it's not, like, as severe. It hasn't gone away, but they've had some, like, public health responses, like education campaigns about boiling water and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. This is uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I will maybe get to the final details of Tchaikovsky, and then I will tell you more about what's, like, weird in this account. Okay. Okay. On Thursday night, as I said before, the doctor arrived and confirmed that this was a textbook case of cholera. So by Friday morning, he appeared to be recovering. The doctors had begun, like, typical treatments. There were no actual effective treatments for cholera at this time. They had, like, vague beliefs that massaging people's limbs and giving them hot baths would maybe help. Can't hurt. They did know, like, the bacteria that caused it and how it was spread, but Mm -hmm. they had no idea what to do once. Mm. People actually got it. Mm. Oh, yeah. So his condition took a turn for the worse again late on Friday. By Saturday, the doctors were all but sure he wouldn't make it. After a brief period on Sunday where they gave him a hot bath and he appeared lucid and Modeste briefly had hope, he fell into semi-unconsciousness. He died around 3 a.m. on Monday morning, surrounded by his family, Modeste, his oldest brother Nikolai, his nephew Bob, and two young friends of his. So they were like protégés of his. He'd organized like classes for them and took them to the zoo and things like that. (laughs) Alexei was also there. That's just so fast to go from like, I've got a bit of a stomach ache, but I'm still going to go out to like, he's dead now. Apparently there are strains of cholera that can like do this in a day. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. This is where things get a little bit weird. So like I said, there was a cholera pandemic, but by 1893... They, like, knew what caused it and the risk could be diminished with good sanitation. And a lot of the time, like, the upper class generally assumed that only the poor died of cholera. This doesn't seem to be true. Like, there are records of a few other wealthy people dying of cholera in this time. Like, in much smaller numbers, but it did happen. Boiling water before drinking it, as I said, was recommended. Modeste says Tchaikovsky had never been particularly diligent about this. 
But still, a number of newspapers raised questions about how someone who was, like, so regular in his routine and seemed sensible, a nice, clean old man, would drink unboiled water and get cholera. I mean, if we know that in reality he didn't always boil his water, that's it. That's the answer. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems entirely plausible that, like, he drank unboiled water or he went to a restaurant where they served him unboiled water or something like that. Yeah, I'm – yeah. I'm not really feeling so, to question the account of him getting cold. No, not yet. So both Modeste and one of the doctors, whose name was Lev Bertensen, gave interviews to the press with detailed eyewitness accounts in order to dispel rumours, because rumours were already going around that he had taken poison because of his homosexuality or other, like questionable rumours. Or just that something had gone wrong. Public opinion came down eventually on blaming the doctor, well, who, sucks. like newspapers suggested, had delayed giving Tchaikovsky a hot bath until much too late. Well, I mean, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's a bath. Yeah. yeah. Even at the time, there were like commentators saying, now hang on, there are no actual effective treatments for cholera. We're just doing our best here. I mean, like, even if he had... He still would have had to have cholera in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Modeste and the doctor came out and gave, like, detailed accounts of what had happened to dispel these rumours. What a terrible thing to have to do as your brothers just died. Following this, one of the doctors who was present, there were several doctors present, also got cholera. So it seems likely that... Tchaikovsky had cholera. Wait, why would he have also got cholera? Because don't you catch it from contaminated water with sewage? But the contamination comes from an infected person's feces. And so if he's treating Tchaikovsky... Oh, if he just like hadn't washed his hands properly after he was in Tchaikovsky's bathroom. And cholera causes diarrhea, so it would be very Mm. easy to come in contact with the bacteria that way. I understand, yeah. So it doesn't seem that unlikely that Tchaikovsky had cholera. It in fact seems like a hundred percent likely that Tchaikovsky had cholera odd discrepancies in the two accounts. So Burdenson's account was published with the date of death on Sunday morning rather than Monday morning. It like truncated the course of the disease by one day. I mean, I do also think that people often just get confused when they're trying to give, you know, if you're up all night and you're trying to say what day it is, people often just mess that up. Yeah. Modeste, meanwhile, put the date of death on the Monday, but he said that his brother seemed to be improving for a brief period on the Sunday, which, while Tchaikovsky was ill because he was very famous, there were public bulletins posted about, like, how he was doing, Mm -hmm. and none of them mentioned this improvement, which apparently people found weird. I mean, you're looking after your dying brother. You're not going to write to the paper every 20 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, where were they getting this information from anyway? Somebody in the house was, like, making an announcement because otherwise they okay. would keep getting callers being like, right. how is Tchaikovsky oh, doing? Yeah, and I so see, they I were see. like, look, we're going to start posting a paper about this. Not but, yet. like, daily. I don't know how often. Presumably when there were significant changes. It's a stressful time. Shush. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's what I thought, too. Eventually, the editor of the New Times, which was one of the newspapers, like, questioning the cholera situation, made a public apology to Modeste and Lev Burdenson about, like, blaming them in some way for Tchaikovsky's death. There was one suspicious thing which occurred after Tchaikovsky's death, which I feel is genuinely suspicious. Okay, because I've heard Um, nothing genuinely suspicious so far. This is the only thing I heard where I was like, no, that is a little bit dubious. But also I feel like it could have just been down to, like, bad management in that after his death, Contrary to what was like the, you know, public health recommendation and what was generally done, they held an open viewing of the body, like a public viewing. But if there's already so much suspicion about his death, surely you would do that. Also, he's just very famous. And I feel like, you know, people do make weird exceptions for famous people, contrary to public health directives, as we know. Yeah, no, definitely. Absolutely. So Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who is another Russian composer, noted in his memoirs how odd it was that though the death was the result of cholera, there was free access to the requiems. I guess Mm. I just kind of don't know, like, what the, like, odd things you've noted would mean. So, I think they're essentially nonsense, but there are a number of stories about what really happened to Tchaikovsky. Most of the non-cholera theories were that he died by suicide one way or another. One held that he was having a personal crisis about his homosexuality and intentionally drank unboiled water in order to die of cholera. Another one suggested that he was having a relationship with the nephew of the doorman of the apartment building and that news of this somehow got to the Tsar, who insisted that he be (laughs) exiled and he preferred to die. Did somebody just make that up wholesale? I guess. (laughs) The... Person who wrote that theory, his name was Musa. He was a Swiss music writer of some kind. The man that he claimed to have got this story from 
never mentioned this story again, not even in the biography of Tchaikovsky that he later wrote. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that one's out. Yep. The one non-cholera theory which has gained a lot of traction holds that Tchaikovsky was pressured into taking poison by his old schoolmates. And I'll read it to you, like, word for word in the first written account of it in English that we have which came from Russian musicologist Anna Orlova, who claimed that she had got it from a man named Alexander Voitev, who she spoke to in 1966, months before his death, and he said that he'd got it <laughs> from a woman named Elizaveta Karlovna on her deathbed many years earlier. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of thing we're looking at. But unfortunately, it was published in a very like well-regarded and authoritative biography of Tchaikovsky and became accepted. Oh, so no. until this episode, if you had asked me how Tchaikovsky died, I would have said he died by suicide because he was gay. That is genuinely what I have been like taught and believed, having like studied yeah. Tchaikovsky. So that is. Yeah, what happened? I, I just um, don't understand how that accounts for the odd things. <laughs> I'll read the account first, okay. okay. And then I'll tell you how they thought that this right. accounted for the nonsense. I can't so, wait. <laughs> the incident took place in the autumn of 1893. Tchaikovsky was threatened with a terrible misfortune. Duke Stenbock Firma, disturbed by the attention which the composer was paying his young nephew, wrote a letter of accusation to the Tsar and handed the letter to Jacobi, who was Elisabetta's husband, and Elisabetta is the like sure. beginning of this chain that got us to this story, to pass on to Alexander III. Through that's the Tsar, I take it. Yeah, that's the Tsar. Through exposure, Tchaikovsky was threatened with the loss of all his rights, with exile to Siberia, with inevitable disgrace. So that's exposure of his attraction to men. Mm -hmm. Exposure would also br bring disgrace upon the school of jurisprudence and upon all the old boys of the school, Tchaikovsky's fellow students. Yet the honour of the school uniform was sacred. To avoid <laughs> no, publicity, Jacobi decided upon the following. He invited all of Tchaikovsky's former school friends that he could trace in St. Petersburg and set up a court of honour, which included himself. Altogether, there were eight people present. Elizaveta Karlovna sat with her needlework in her usual place alongside her husband's study. From time to time, within, she could hear voices, sometimes loud and agitated, sometimes dropping apparently to a whisper. This went on for a very long time, almost five hours. Then Tchaikovsky came headlong out of the study. He was almost running. He was unsteady. He went out without saying a word. He was very white and agitated. All the others stayed a long time in the study, talking quietly. When they had gone, Jacobi told his wife, having made her swear absolute silence, that what they had decided about Stenbock firma letter to the Tsar. Jacobi could not withhold it, and so the old boys of the school had come to a decision by which Tchaikovsky had promised to abide. They required him to kill himself. A day or two later, news of the composer's mortal illness was circulating in St. Petersburg. So that's the nonsense. Okay, so has no one else who's gone to this school ever been involved in a scandal? Uh, yes. Men are involved in homosexual scandals who attend this school all the time. This school sounded pretty gay. Yeah. That yeah. is one aspect of nonsense. A second aspect of nonsense is that there is no record of a Duke Stenbock firma. Ah. Oh, okay. There is a Count Stenbock firma. He seems to have worked directly with the Tsar, so it would be weird of him to hand a letter to someone else to give to the Tsar. Yeah, and the whole bit about the wife sitting outside the door and everything. Like, that's, yeah, that's just a novel. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, again, don't really understand how this accounts for the odd things. So what they sort of proposed happened was they were like, all right, Tchaikovsky went home. He took poison. He waited until it would be too late to treat him, at which point he was like, send for the doctor. And then he sent for the doctor. He told the story to the doctor and was like, I need you to put out that it was cholera. And then he died. And thus, that's where the discrepancies in the, like, dates came from, because they were fabricated. Oh, so they were faking a sort of textbook death of cholera. Yeah. And that's why they were so lax about, like, letting people into the house or, but, like, having but, an but open casket. But that doesn't casket, make sense. Which if just you were suggests... saying we need to fake him dying of cholera, you wouldn't be like, yeah, let's, like, have, like, an open casket and invite people in. You would follow medical advice to the letter. You absolutely yeah. would. I think this also. However... Scholarly opinion remains divided. That's insane. Why? I cannot tell. I read Orlova's paper. 
That was quoted directly from it. I feel like, and I think we see this often, scholars are very lazy and they will take something back a certain step in the sources and they will not bother to actually go back to the primary sources and look at them and go, this is where this rumor or this claim Mm. came from. And they'll just be like, oh, yeah, well, it's in, like, that biography or, oh, yeah, I read in that paper, so I guess that's true. And it just, like, keeps getting repeated. I also think there's a tendency for scholars to once they encounter something controversial do a lot of like both sidesism kind of yeah where they'll treat both sides Mm. as like plausible let's examine the Mm. evidence equally even when you know as far as i can tell patently they're not the beginning of this is just like the combination of the unusual fact that like an elite member of society Mm. has died of cholera and the fact that he's gay seem to just have like come together to make public opinion be like something weird happened there. Mm. And I think it is worth noting that clearly part of how this managed to get so much traction at the time, and obviously that's why it continued on to like current biographies mm. and so forth, is because of this like deep need of the elite to come up with reasons why they were safe from this disease. Yeah. And therefore like violently attack anything that might question their fake world view. Yeah. Which yeah. Is is an incredibly dangerous way of thinking to give into, which is something that we've seen all too clearly over the last year. You know, like that's exactly the same sort of motivation that makes people convince themselves that COVID-19 isn't real and they don't really need to wear masks and stuff like that. Yeah. This kind of making up reasons why you can't really get me. Yeah, no, that's definitely how I felt about it when I read this. I was like, clearly one of these is a bunch of like rumor and hearsay based on sensationalism. And the other one seems like a plausible story. Of yeah, the, the other one cholera. man drank unboiled water during pandemic where that is dangerous. Man developed symptoms of that disease. Man died. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did read read one scholar and I can't remember where I read it because I didn't know at the time how big a deal this was going to be. Oh, yeah. But I did read one scholar saying, I think the exact words were like, the only flaw in the cholera story is that we cannot prove that he didn't take a poison with the exact symptoms of cholera. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that seems pretty damning. I mean, yeah, I guess it's the thing that you can never definitively prove that he died of cholera. Mm. Therefore, it makes it possible for people to kind of do this speculation and everything. I mean, I guess, though, we can say, like, okay, what were readily available poisons and what were their symptoms? The proposition, I I can tell you, was arsenic, which does also cause diarrhea. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to say that I don't think that, like, diarrhea is, like, a particularly wild symptom. Yeah, like, diarrhea and muscle spasms, I guess, you could easily. And I guess, like, given that the theory is that the doctor was in on it. It's incredibly easy to be like about literally anyone's death. Oh, they didn't really die. The doctor was in about it and they fled. In any case, David Brown, who published the like authoritative four volume biography of Tchaikovsky in the 1970s, which contained this story and like claimed it as plausible. See, this is what I mean about lazy scholarship. Everyone Um, will be like, oh, that's the authoritative biography. I'll just read that. In 2006, he wrote another biography of Tchaikovsky, which was much more focused on like the music rather than the man's life. Was it called like Oopsie Doodle? It was not. (laughs) But at the end of it, he recounted this story again and he said, is this story true? I doubt we shall ever know. Does this matter? No, not really, for Tchaikovsky's reputation rests not on the more sensational incidents and aspects of his life, but on his prodigious gift of great music to his people and to us, which frankly sounds like an oopsie doodle to me. You can't ever say, what is the truth of this? It doesn't matter. That's not the job of a historian. That is not your job. And it is also dangerous to spread that as an acceptable point of view. You know, like, fine, acknowledge, we'll never know when that is a reasonable thing to acknowledge, but saying, what is the truth? It doesn't matter. Kind of throws away the entire point of doing history. Like if you don't think things that happened in the past mattered, what are you doing here? Just go write a novel then. Yeah. 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 And like, you might think, oh, well in this instance, it doesn't really matter, but you can't set history down that path because Mm. some things really do matter. (laughs) As Eli raised before, like, this story very much does matter. Like it comes yeah. into things like how society considered like same gender attraction mm. and how society considered disease and like how mm. we consider like wealth and like. Yeah. yeah. And, and also those sorts of arguments of what is the truth about this? Well, we'll never know. And it doesn't matter because it's not important to who this person really was and what was important about them is a hundred percent a line of reasoning that is used to dismiss discussion of people being queer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. It's not what this person's done in this case, but I'm just saying when we allow that kind of 
mm. argument and that kind of hand waving to have a place in respective biographies, then we're just allowing that kind of thing to thrive more easily as well. That's very true. And I think that's a fair thing to say that like once you start being like, well, their personal life is not important. Mm. What's important is like, you know, the thing that they did that I've heard of. Yeah. Yeah. You allow so much to be thrown away, essentially. Yeah, and I mean, that's so common that you see someone be like, oh, well, why do you care if they if he slept with men? Like, can't we just focus on his music? You don't see that with Tchaikovsky, but you do see that all the time with mm. all kinds of yeah, yeah, queer that's people. so common. So, similarly, we can't just dismiss, you know, something that's not the things that they're just really famous for. Yeah. Thank you for being mad about this with me. Yeah. With that, we've been queer as fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can hear it and many more wherever you find your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. If you liked it, please leave us a review. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that particularly helps us to reach a wider audience. If you want to support the podcast, you can sign up to our Patreon or you can buy merch from our Redbubble store. If you don't want to spend money on us, you can just tell all your friends about us. That's also much appreciated. You can find us on social media on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook as Queer as Fact, or email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also find sources for each episode and links to everything on our website, queerasfact.com. We respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, both past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which we record this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 